Hello, this is Sean Leary, and welcome back to QC Uncut, the number one rated podcast in the Quad Cities, and thank you for making us that. And as always, you get uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with me and my guests, who are always a wide array of interesting people around the Quad Cities. You talk to everybody from politicians to artists to just regular people who are going through interesting situations and have intriguing stories to tell. And the person I'm talking to today is a very intriguing person with a lot of interesting things to say. It's Rick Davis. <laughs> That's Rick over there. <laughs> and Rick is uh, Rick and I have known you and I have known each other for quite some time and we have had a long history together. We have done shows together. I've directed you in a couple of shows. Um, you know, you have done a lot of one man shows. I've written stories about them. You know, so you know we've been friends for a while. We've known each other for a long time, and so uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation talking to Rick about his. And Rick is an interesting dude. He has done a lot of really cool stuff around the area. He's done a lot of shows with comedy sports. He's done drama. He's done one man shows. He's done inspirational speaking. Just a lot of different stuff. So, and Rick is a solid dude. And and you How said, much do I owe you for this? <laughs> My gosh. I, I want to bring up this story because <laughs> you said I could go anywhere and you would talk about anything. There was, a, there was a time when I tried to fix you up with my ex-wife, with Jackson's. Remember that? No. Yeah, you called me. about. You said you met her on Match.com. Yes, now I do remember that because she and I were supposed to meet at Cool Beans, I think. Uh-huh. And, yeah, I do remember that. That was, that was many years ago, long before she was married to right. her current husband, Jackson's stepdad, who's a great guy, really mm-hmm. good guy. Um, this was many, many years ago. This was probably like five years ago or something. Um, after she and I had split up, and you had said, you called me up and you said, Hey, I got kind of an uncomfortable thing to ask you. <laughs> I met this woman online and I wasn't sure because she wasn't using my last name. And she was, and she's like, I think it might be like your ex. And I just wanted to touch base with you about this because I didn't want to be a jerk about it. Sure. Blah, 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 blah. And so I'm like, so you had me look at the profile. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's my ex. That's Jackson's mom. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I'm, you're a good guy. You're the kind of guy that I'd want her to be dating, that I'd want to be around my son. So it's like I actually like was helping to try and, like, I was helping to fix you up, to, like, set you up. Because, you know, I want my ex-wife to be happy, and she's the mother of my son. I want her to be with a good guy, and I want Jackson to be around a good guy. So what higher compliment can you pay to someone <laughs> than something like that, you know, seriously. Yeah, I, I think it says a lot about you because, my gosh, I, I, it was deathly uncomfortable for me to even ask because it, that's the kind of thing that a lot of people just gloss over, like, uh, if they find out, I'll deal with it then. Mm. But I, I, I know this area is very small, so you would have found out instantly. So in my head, I was like, I got to reach out to him because I, I respect you too. as just who you are. You've, you've been so good to me over the years. So I, I called you up or I think it was Facebook message maybe. And, yeah, and I can't remember it was cause it was, it was like five years ago. I mean, it was a while ago. Yeah. But I just knew that it was the right thing to do just to say, Hey, heads up here. Here's what's going on. Uh, and, and you were like, dude, yeah, by all means go for it. And I, I thought that was very, uh, very awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Rick. So um, I think that that story says a lot about both of us. One of the things we're talking about off off rec off record here, off the recorder here, was we were discussing the possibility of like 
doing some sort of seminar, doing shows in regard to dating and stuff, because both of us are single and we're kind of dating and stuff and everything. Yeah, thanks, and so, yeah, <laughs> and uh, the weird thing to me, and, and this kind of harkens to what we were just talking about, is so many guys nowadays are so weirdly sensitive and possessive about things. And they, like, the minute a girl says no to them, they just flip out on them. And I don't get it, because I'm never that way. Right. I mean, if somebody, if you ask somebody out and they say no, okay. Yeah, next. I mean, really, next. Next, I mean, yeah. I hate to say Absolutely. it, but it's, it's, it's kind of a wide, you know, and, and women have showed me these texts of guys where, like, they'll, the guys will message them. And first, the guys are, like, you know, usually horrible at asking them out anyway. Or, like, asking out is such a quaint colloquialism to you know you up or <laughs> right here <laughs> dtf you know i mean really it's like there's no there's not a lot of grace and elegance in terms of the social uh, mores yeah. and, and asking somebody to get together right i mean at your best you're gonna get want to hang out mm-hmm. you know and so but nevertheless if a woman rejects that you know incredibly tempting and charming offer then you know, the guy just flips out right usually yeah and i say usually Usually, because it is like most of the time, and I don't know where did where was that Rubicon crossed where like all of a sudden people feel the the entitlement to someone else's time that when they reject their offer they flip out on them or they feel entitled to you know lash out in anger at the mere rejection of their presence even though they've never even shared so much as you know the same room together. I, I think it's a lot of a lot of ego and a lot of testosterone. I, I think there's just guys who grew up in that machismo era who thought, yeah, of course she wants me, that kind of stuff. And then if their ego gets bruised by somebody saying no to them, then they just flip out and just really let the woman hear about it because how dare you treat me like that? You should be, you know, worshiping me basically is, is what a, a lot of these guys are thinking, I think. But it's a lack of ego. Mm-hmm. I mean, people sometimes, you know, when people have accused, people have accused me of being arrogant mm-hmm. and being egotistical. And I take, I don't really take offense necessarily to that because I understand it. Um, but I don't think that I'm arrogant. I think mm-hmm. I'm confident. Sure. And I mean, maybe straddling the line of cocky at times, I'll own that. Okay. But, you know, I think I'm much more just confident and secure in myself, which leads me to places where, like, I can, you know, you contact me or somebody contacts me and they're a good person. They're like, hey, you know what? I started talking to this woman online and it turns out it's your ex-wife. You know, I'm, how do you feel about that? That's all I know. It's awkward, blah, blah, blah. Right. And some guys just be like, fucking asshole, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Me, I'm just like, oh, okay, well, you know, thanks for telling me and you're a good guy. And, you know, I, I think it's that. It's the same way with, like, surrounding yourself, the people you surround yourself with. Like, all the people I like surrounding myself with are high achievers. People who, are, who go out and they do things. They don't just talk about doing things. Sure. They do them. You know, because when you're around high achievers, you don't have to dim your shine. Right. You can be as powerful, you can be as uh, ambitious, as driven as you want to be, because they're the same. They're all striving. You're all striving to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And when that's the case, there isn't insecurity, there isn't that ego, there isn't that jealousy. 
because you recognize the fact that you're just trying to be the best you that you can be and nobody else is going to be you mm-hmm. and so you kind of inc- you encourage each other to be the best version of yourselves that you can be and you're not you're not jealous of that you're not insecure about that because i realize the things you can do are different than the things that i can do and the strengths that you have are different than the strengths i have and so i'm happy for you with the accomplishments that you have or any of my other friends you know any of my other close friends are all very driven accomplished people Mm -hmm. and so it's very interesting to me because old me came from a very different place i mean of course i'm still the same person but the prior version of me was I let my insecurities from my childhood, from my young adulthood, all that kind of stuff, allow women to say no to me. Like it was, they were supposed to say no. Like I half expected that. Like, of course, yeah, because I'm just this worthless peon. Of course, you wouldn't want to date me. That has shifted over the past few years. I, you know, I've grown. I've learned to talk to myself in a much better way, but. I think there's still those little voices in the back of my brain like, yeah, this probably isn't going to work um, when it totally should. I'm the one who gives up before anybody else would. And I think that that is what happens to a lot of guys uh, and women for that matter, too. I think Uh, just we beat ourselves up so much that we're we're ingrained to think, eh, of course, they don't want to date me now. I think I'm in a place where I know exactly what I want. I I know who I would click with, who I wouldn't. Um, If somebody is like highly creative, fun, outgoing personality, that's probably more up my alley. But I I probably could match very well with an introvert, somebody who um, is very smart, just fun, uh, maybe a little shy. Just it, it, it. it comes down to just knowing exactly what I'll, I'll click with and what I won't. Um, so I, I think that says a lot about who we are and what, how we talk to ourselves. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And it is, it is true. Like, I think the more secure you are and the more um, – then you don't let that – the lack of ego – because if people think of ego as they don't think of ego as in a different way, you know, they th- or they think of it as as a negative thing. There's always a con- a negative connotation when it comes to like thinking about oh I've got he's got a big ego or right. you know we've got ego and but ego isn't always a bad thing. I mean ego sometimes it depends on how it is utilized. Yeah. It depends. I mean if it helps you get through tough times, if you, it gives you confidence and hey you know what I don't care I'm going to get through this. Mm-hmm. Or it helps you stand up to challenges or helps you, you know, get through conflicts. It's like um, I've had this discussion with people a lot about conflict. Most people shy away from conflict. I tend to go towards conflict. Interesting. And part of it is, I mean, I think part of it is from I've been a writer since I was a teenager. I started professionally writing when I was 11. I I wrote for newspapers when I was a teenager and wrote for comic books and, and everything. And when you're a reporter... You have no choice but to be in conflict sure. a lot of times because you're asking people questions that they don't want to answer sometimes. And, you know, what I was covering, I mean, a lot of times when I'm covering it, when I was covering entertainment, mm-hmm. that wasn't necessarily the case because people want to talk about the fun <laughs> things they're doing. But there were times when, like, you know, I mean, I wrote something criticizing the Eagles about having ticket prices that were way too high. And the manager of the Eagles, Larry Solters, called me up at the newspaper and kind of lambasted me and then I went back and forth and toe to toe to him and I ended up writing a column 
tell him about that, and then he got pissed off about that, and then he called me back again, and you know. I'll be very honest and, with you. As soon as you said the Eagles, my brain went to the old grocery stores that used to be around here. <laughs> that was it. The dude shopped at Eagles. He did, but he didn't like Eagles. How dare they have Lady Lee? Yeah, yeah. That was it. They, <laughs> damn you! I wanted, I want a little Debbie. So, um, but yeah, or like when I was covering City Council Beach, or you know, sure. covering hard news, or at one point, like you know, I, was, I went, I had to interview the governor and the lieutenant governor and stuff like that. And you're asking them questions that they don't want to answer. And, right. you know, so you kind of go towards confrontation. You get used to it as a reporter. And, um, it's like a muscle though. I think, yeah, you know, I think right. people, when they're used to just doing it and having practice confronting challenging issues, mm-hmm. it gets easier, but a lot of us don't practice it. But I think in, in a lot of ways, like it's not even conflict. It's just, open discussion yeah. and it facilitates communication it clarifies things but again i think it goes back to those challenging conversations in our head where we think ah this is probably gonna we we play it out before we even get there like this is uncomfortable to talk about so once we start talking about it, it's probably going to be a, an argument a disagreement so that's where i think it falls into we're just going to avoid it altogether and that is where I think a lot of problems lie is because so often, you know, it's like Mr. Furley syndrome hmm. where like, you know, so often misunderstandings lead to difficulties, right. you know, pe- you overhear every three's company, every three's company episode was a misunderstanding <laughs> leading to a problem. But like, it's true. I mean, if you don't communicate with people and you don't talk to talk things out, oftentimes they're left, their imagination is left to fill the gaps and people being pessimistic and used to negative things they fill them with negative things and well that person must have done this because they don't like me or this or that or whatever whereas if you just ask the person sometimes that you'd find out that it had nothing to do with you yeah at all yeah and maybe they were just in a crabby mood because this happened or that happened or they got a, a parking ticket or you know they're they had a flat tire or who knows i mean and they're so, people are just cranky and that like you know it has absolutely nothing to do with you whatsoever and you're just personalizing it yep. and so people I think we project a lot, a lot and this goes from experience for me like i grew up in a very verbally abusive uh father my father was very verbally abusive so I, I couldn't ask for anything uh, because I'd get, you know, just like, what the hell are you asking that for? Um, I couldn't do anything right. So as soon as I started doing something, every time I did it, I was wrong. So here, let me do it. So I had to let people do things for me and I couldn't ask for anything. Like a teacher in school could ask something as simple as what's two plus two. In my brain, I knew it was four. But if I were to answer four, for some reason in my brain, it would be a trick question and four wouldn't be the wrong, the, the right answer. It'd be the wrong answer. So growing up that way, you know, I couldn't ask women uh, to go out because I would be wrong for asking all that kind of stuff. Just different things that led me to just avoid anything I, I could ever do. Now, of course, I, I've learned, I'm aware of that. And I, I, I know that I, I can't do that anymore because that's that's a huge detriment to who I am and what I'm uh, capable of doing. Now, how did you overcome that? Because a lot of people find themselves, uh, in, in so many ways, mm-hmm. a lot of us overcome the treacheries, the treacherous paths, the difficulties of our upbringing. Yeah. And it's, 
I mean, our parents were all from a very different generation, mm-hmm. and they weren't the, from the communication generation. Yeah, and you know, they were used to like you know. Hey, just fuck it, buck it up. You know, I mean, you can't. They, they didn't sit there and talk it out. Yeah. And so, you know, it was the same thing with me growing up. I mean, I grew up poor. I, you know, had a very difficult upbringing. I bullied a lot because yeah. I was so weird. <laughs> Not that that has changed, Rick. It's just you know, I've found different pathways to express it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and so you you have to overcome that. But I think everyone carries those things with them, and. Um, you know, it, it, everybody overcomes them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of strange. I mean, this goes way off on a totally different path. But um, I was having a discussion with somebody about representation, about how important it was, like, to have, like, a female Doctor Who or to have the Black Panther movie come out mm-hmm. and to have kids, you know, people of color or women or whoever identify with an on-screen persona right and be able to see that as something of a, a fantastic path um because that is it's an interesting thing with entertainment is you project yourself onto the characters yeah and i mean when i was growing up it was david bowie was like huge for me and like david bowie um george carlin andy kaufman I mean, David Letterman, yeah. a little later on and stuff like that. I mean, those were the people that, you know, were kind of my heroes sort of growing up. And, you know, was you look at all of them, and Bowie was very chameleon-like, and he, but they were all very distinct people, and they were so strong in the way that they were. Yeah. And they just kind of followed their own path and did what they wanted to do. Yeah. And they were weird, and they embraced it. And it worked for them, and people loved them because of their strangeness, because they embraced it. And that's something that everybody can and learn from now when you look at something like the having a female doctor who which all the fanboys got all you know freaked right. out about which i thought was asinine <laughs> but uh if you're a little girl who's kind of offbeat and you like learning and you're kind of a bookworm and you dress kind of in a funky way and and you don't fit into you know the societally prescribed ways in which girls are supposed to behave or whatever and you have no role models and you have nothing to look to and all you look to is like these you know these barbie dolls or the kardashians who are essentially like you know barbie dolls writ large on the television screen and put to life you you feel even more like an outsider mm-hmm. and then when something like this comes along suddenly you're empowered because you realize wow i'm not alone yes and there's somebody out there who's cool who's like me yeah and so, so I, I i just saw this advertisement yesterday so i'm a presentation trainer i'm always looking at different presentations uh seminars workshops all that kind of uh, stuff there was this big event in California that had uh, a lot of women. It was a women's empowerment event. And like Elizabeth Gilbert was going to be there. And the advertisement had five women's pictures on this flyer. Now, in the comments, I I was like, wow, a lot of these people sound like they don't want to go. And then you read a little bit more and you find out that the reason they don't want to go is because the five pictures on this uh, advertisement were five white blonde women. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you go to the website, you see there's, there's all these different women who of different backgrounds, different ethnicities. But 
because they advertise these five white women, many of the people are like, I'm not going to this because they're not showing that this is a diverse event. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great. That's a great thing that people are standing up to that now because right now we're at a a time when we can say, yes, this is what I want. This is who I connect with. So please show me that I'm going to be welcome by having somebody who's like me at your event Mm -hmm. Um, where I don't think we used to do that. I think we used to just be like, ah, uh, it's that's who's going to be there. Uh, okay, that, I guess maybe I'll I'll find something. Maybe I won't. But now we're like, no, I can connect with a lot more than these five white blonde women, mm-hmm. and and that's just not. I mean, that's not the only event that that happens. It happens all the time. Right. That's not to say that these five white blonde women don't have anything of value to say. I'm sure they're brilliant. Uh, I love Liz Gilbert, but I think if we tread down that path where that's all we're promoting we have to be aware that we do have a lot of people from different backgrounds who are very knowledgeable and we can learn a lot from i agree i I, you know that's and that's something that you know it kind of goes back to what we were talking about where you know guys flip out over these things and people flip out about that too you know when you talk about inclusion you talk about things of that nature people don't stop to think about it they just instantly knee-jerk reaction you know they they get angry about it or you're trying to change well people get angry about change in general because you know they have to become uncomfortable with the fact that things in the status quo aren't working for certain people and then they instantly personalize it and take blame for it instead of just thinking you know oh yeah well that sucks let's change it it doesn't really impact it doesn't diminish me it just includes other people i don't see where that has to diminish other people you know it's ridiculous to think that the inclusion of different people and different ethnicities and different people of different viewpoints doesn't necessarily diminish you it just kind of shows that there are a lot of different people and a lot of different things and viewpoints out there and why shouldn't that be included why shouldn't everybody be included in 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 the vast array of voices that are heard to allow those people who are there a space and to allow them a place in the spotlight yeah. so that like we said like if you're a little girl or a little boy growing up and you don't look like the people on the poster you feel alienated yeah in you know and you and i have talked about that we're like and here we are we're two white males right. but we were both kind of weird growing up and we both mm-hmm. didn't fit in yeah. and so we had to look for those other people who were weird the, the you know misfits. the misfits yeah. and so we looked for the misfits mm-hmm. and you know it was always it, it, it's like i was talking to someone I always identified more with the friend of the protagonist. When you had like a romantic comedy or something like that, you've got the two boring people that are the man and the woman that fall in love. And then you've got the colorful friend. You've got the interesting friend. And I always identified more with the interesting friend. And the I always felt more attracted to the colorful female friend that was like, you know, the one who actually was allowed to have a personality. Right. You know, so it wasn't the Meg Ryan character. It was like the Parker Posey character. It was the one that had the personality and was allowed to have a personality because she wasn't the generic lead. I would assume the movie Some Kind of Wonderful resonates with you then. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, because that, I mean, that's a great example of, yeah, here, here you think, you know, the, the leads are going to be this beautiful, gorgeous woman and, and the dopey guy that uh-huh. just kind of does his thing. Right. He's attracted to the beautiful woman, of course, but all along, the friend, who is a female, uh-huh. happens to just 
just really slowly give her personality. This is who I am. This is what I'm all about. Supports him all the way. And then you live through her like, yes, I'm rooting for her to win. And she eventually does. Yeah, to bring up John Hughes movies, Rick, I think it all, it all comes down to whether you're Team Blaine or Team Ducky. <laughs> It's the same thing. You look at Pretty and Pink, and it's like, you know, Pretty and Pink, Ducky is this kind of weirdo character, but he's so totally dedicated to Andy, and then she ends up going off with Blaine. Blaine, it's the name of a major appliance. It's not a guy. You know, I mean, because he's boring. I mean, Andrew McCartney, Blaine is such a boring freaking character in that movie. It's like, Ducky has so much more personality. It's just, it just sucks, Rick. Yeah. But but then you see like somebody like Zoe Deschanel who like big crush celebrity crush of mine yeah big who, there, yeah well right and she's weird and quirky and yes. then yeah she's kind of like you know become this sort of you know avatar of quirkiness that ends up and becoming the lead yeah. and you see that more and more where it's the quirky person that's kind of becoming the lead you know so I don't know what this and this is probably a, a completely different tangent but for some reason it popped in my brain so. I don't know if you watch many of the documentaries about uh, celebrities who've passed or anything sure. like that. Sure. Have you seen the Whitney Houston one? Uh, no. I mean, I saw like the behind the music stuff, and but it could be like a different documentary you're talking sure. about. Yeah, I guess there have been several yeah. about her, but I think there was one on Showtime, uh, and it may, might not have been a Showtime documentary, but it was just on Showtime. Um, I'm watching this whole thing, and I've always had a big crush on Whitney Houston. Just talent crush, major crush, whatever it is. I've just always felt connected to her. I, and somewhere deep down inside of me, as I'm watching this, I'm having that feeling that, like, I I could have saved her. Had she and I known each other, I I could have saved her. Like, I I know I could have helped her and and wanted to take care of her and and help her get through her demons because I just, I feel that need. And it was just such a bizarre thing. So, again, I think she was one of those people who, you know, it appeared that she was prim and proper, but she, I think she was a creative misfit as well. I mean, I think she just had a lot of different stuff, well, with her family background and everything too. But there are a lot of people like that. I mean, I think most people, go into the arts you know you don't there are a lot of stable i don't and stable sounds like almost too harsh but there aren't a lot of people that if you're happy with your life i always say um you know fantasy and fiction fill the gaps that reality leaves wanting Mm And you don't go into a profession where you create universes if the one you live in is satisfactory. And so, so many people who are in the arts are there because at one point their lives sucked Mm -hmm. and they weren't happy and they were the kids sitting alone in the room. And so they had to create their own friends and they had to create their own world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was medicine. I mean, we we latch on to things that help us get over our, our challenges. So for me, it was humor, it was cartoons, it was music. Um, I just, I took it all in. I was a sponge. I had friends when I was little. It was just dealing with the things going on with my dad. I mean, back then, my dad was, he was depressed and angry and all that kind of stuff. We didn't know that back then. We just thought, oh, dad's mad. But now we can look back and say, dad, dad probably had some... some 
some challenges of his own that we just didn't know about, and I, I wish we could have helped him. I mean, he he's a good guy. It's just one of those things that he wasn't good around us, you know, took a lot of things out on us and really made us pay the price for his frustration. So we, we turn to those things that we can really grab onto. Like uh, I spent hours watching v- VHS tapes of comedians, um, listening to albums of comedians. Cartoons were always awesome. Sitcoms that were playing after school, like Alice, um, Brady Bunch, Leave it to Beaver, all those kinds of shows that, you know, they teach lessons along the way. And like you said, we live vicariously through those characters. I, I still do. Whenever I watch a movie, I'm, I'm really feeling those feelings that somebody in that movie is really going through. And it, it eats at me sometimes if it's too challenging. But... I love every minute of it. I, I won't ever, ever, ever give that up because I, I know I can connect with those lessons that the movie is really trying to show. You've seen Pleasantville, haven't you? Oh, yeah. That's, 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 oh, yeah. Uh, great movie. Like, instantly reminded me of Pleasantville. <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie. Plus, Don Knotts. So, right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. So, yeah, we've got a lot of fun on a tremendous tangent here. So, um, <laughs> you're it, welcome. It, you're, yeah, sure, exactly. Um, but that, I mean, it's interesting Like you bring up your dad and stuff like that, and then you say, like, you know, about Whitney Houston, and you're like, you know, I could have been the one to save her, blah, 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 you know. It's but but weird it's weird because you, you grew up that way. You grew up, like, thinking you could save someone who was... I still do. And, and that's the thing is, like, we, in so many ways, we... We pursue, we continually pursue the archetype of the unfinished circle yeah. that we had when we were kids. And, and in a lot of relationships, it's like, and you see that both men and women, mm-hmm. you look for somebody subconsciously who reminds you of the parent or whoever or friend or family member that you couldn't help. Yeah. And so you kind of subconsciously look for somebody like, maybe I can, if I help this person, then somewhere along the space-time continuum, it'll like matter. Yeah, it'll like you know bridge the gap between this thing that I couldn't do when I was younger. You yeah. know, it's really weird, but for psychologically, me, it makes sense. For me, it's one of those things where I have to stand up for the little guy. You know, wh- whoever is getting picked on or disrespected. It just burns my hide. Like, I have to do something, say something, just whatever it is, if I witness it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's behind the fact, you know, later on down the road, then I, I can't do much about it. But if I'm witnessing something in the moment, I will always say something. Uh, just like, hey, let's, you know, take it easy, or whatever it is, just depending on the severity of the disrespect. But mm-hmm. it's one of those things that's ingrained in me. Like, I, because I felt like... I don't want anybody else to have to go through what I went through. So that's exactly why I'm going to stand up for them because maybe I couldn't stand up for myself, but I can at least help somebody else who's going through similar things. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way. And we were talking before we started recording about like Jack, my son Jackson is the same way. The only times Jackson has ever, ever gotten in trouble at school or like twice. And it's been because he ended up getting into fights with bullies who were bullying other other kids mm-hmm. and he was standing up for the other kids being bullied right and so awesome. uh, it, yeah i mean it's one of those things where it's like i admire his character in regard to that and he it's because you know he grew up and i would tell him these t- stories and like kind of raise him like hey you know you should stand up for your friends and yeah. you should be a loyal friend and you should be a good person and and not allow people who are powerless to be abused Absolutely. in terms of that you know because it's it's not fair and i 
And I think just in general, you're seeing that more with society. And maybe it's because, you know, we've evolved in in a lot of ways where people have communicated more openly about that and they don't feel as if they have to hide it and they don't want other people to have to go through a lot of the stuff that they went through when they were younger. Yeah. Yeah. And I... I, I always wish well on everybody. Like, my, my profile names for a lot of things I do, and I probably shouldn't say this, so everybody's going to l- go look this up, but uh, <laughs> use, you know, crack my codes, all that. You sure you want to do this, Rick? Yes. <laughs> but uh, it's Ralphie One, R A L F E, the number one. And to me, it's always stood for respect and love for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just who I am because I, I, I know life can suck. And so I just, I know even the, the assholes out there, I, you know, I feel for them. I empathize with them because I know somewhere down, down the road before they, they were really hurt somewhere. And that's why they are the way they are. They learn things from their parents. And I'm sure their parents weren't very, very happy about a lot of things. And, you know, whatever environment we're around most, that's kind of what we absorb. Well, yeah. Every, I mean, every, everything is learned. Racism is learned. Biases are learned. You know, a baby doesn't like, you know, pop out of the womb and like instantly become racist or something. You know, I mean, they everything that, you know, in that direction is, is picked up by what they're taught so the, by the, the people around them. The interesting thing about this is... There's a lot of things that should be saying, okay, well, if your dad is very verbally abusive, aren't you very verbally abusive? Because that's what you learned and that's what you were around. I was very fortunate to have the yin to my dad's yang around. My mom was angel on earth. I mean, she was just the total opposite of my dad. She was the calming voice. She was the the comforter. Just everything my dad wasn't during that time that he was frustrated. My mom was there to make sure everything was okay. So that's that's what I you know I, I struggled with for a long a long time, just figuring out. I don't want to be like my dad. I mean, because shoot, I remember being you know eight nine years old asking my mom to get a divorce because that's I just hated my dad that much. I, I'm glad she didn't at the time because you know broken homes are never a fun thing for any kid. But you know things can always end up different. Everybody's different, but. Mom taught me lessons that, yes, things are miserable, but we'll always get through it. We'll always be awesome. Be good to, to people. Love no matter what. And, and that's what I've, I've taken to heart, and that's, that's who I've become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get into your artistic career and how this has informed your artistic career. And how did you first get into the arts? I mean, this sort of sets the background. Um, what would have led you into this fantasy world or making up characters and becoming different personas? When did you first start doing that as a child and what were the events that precipitated it? Where did it go? Saturday morning Bugs Bunny cartoons were an absolute must. I had to watch them. And it was on for like two hours, like just all these different Bugs Bunny cartoons back then. And I I latched on to every single one of them. So I, I grew up just loving that animation, that style, that humor. Um, and I, I would just kind of, you know, toy with playing them as characters with my friends and all that kind of stuff. Well, I got into more like Tex Avery cartoons. So Tom and Jerry, the one that really stuck out to me was Droopy Dog. And I love Droopy Dog. And it was probably around gosh, sixth grade or so where I started 
doing the voices more regularly and starting to sound and really fill my voice with how these characters actually sounded. And I latched onto that, was getting great reactions from people like, oh my gosh, that's awesome, That you sound just like him. And so, of course, we, we do things where people are like, yeah, do more of that. So that's, that's what I did and kept at it and started growing from there. And, and again, I went to the medicine for those stand-up comedy albums, things like that. Um, learned a lot of styles, different styles of comedy, and really started developing the humor along with the skill of doing voices and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of blossomed from there. Did theater and, and school, did the variety shows in, in high school. Um, just wanted to have fun, put a laugh out there in the world. When do you first remember being on stage for the very first time? And when do you first remember when you were on stage feeling, A, the thrill of people laughing at you and the audience? Because you and I have both been on stage many times and you know both of these feelings. One, when the audience is with you and the other, when they're against you. Right. And when do you remember both of those moments? And then what do you recall from like the first time or the first, the first time it really made an impact on sure. you being on stage? Sixth grade Christmas program. It, it was called, we did a play called like Santa's Gone Hip. Maybe that was one of the songs. It, it was something like that. But basically Santa Claus was losing respect of the kids, wanted to do something different. So he changed into rock and roll Santa to, you know, be hip, be cool. Uh, and then it found, we find out later on that Santa is actually cool the way he is now. So... Uh, I was one of the rock and roll elves. And at the time, I remember, man, like, man, I wanted to be rock and roll Santa. But I, I just was like, eh, all right, let's just do this. So being the rock and roll elf, I, uh, we had dance numbers. And this, I think the song, Santa's Gone Hip, was playing. And in my brain, just instinctually, every, it, uh, the line was, Santa's gone hip, 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 bump. Bum, bum. Every time there was the bump, 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 I, I moved my hips. I was uh-huh. like, bump, bump, like an Elvis move. And the, cro- the crowd was roaring, just like dying laughing. And I, I remember that feeling like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. And so right after that, everybody was calling me swivel hips, all, all, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is my jam. So I think that kind of really spring- springboarded a lot of what I was going to be as a performer. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the, the challenging moment, oh, gosh, I, I started doing stand-up comedy right out of high school. And maybe probably when I was about 20, uh, I did stand up and I, I didn't really ever bomb, but I, I had this, uh, this gig in Galesburg at a country club for the, I think it was a bank and this bank was very conservative and which I knew, but I, I did my, my regular routine. I was supposed to do 45 minutes. I think I cut it down to 25 because they were just stone face. I mean, there was just nothing happening. The, the bartenders, the wait staff, all that kind of stuff, they were loving it. My fr- I took a, a friend of mine and he was laughing too, but everybody else was just like, nope, not, this isn't us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that really hit home because it, I, that was probably the first time I recognized I'm not going to connect to every crowd. And there are, there will be people who just don't get my style of humor and just don't really, 
uh, laugh at everything I do. And that, that was a, a big shock to me because I, I, I always got good reactions from a lot of the things I was doing. So that one, like really, I, I think I stopped doing stand up for, you know, a little bit after that, just because, I mean, it was that first one that was like, man, that sucked. But I'm so thankful I had it because then I, I, re, I learned that lesson that, you know, I don't have to please everyone. I should know my audience and, and know what works with the audience I'm talking to. So, and what's interesting to me, because you're not a, a blue comedian, so it's like, if they're a conservative audience and they're not liking you, I mean... <laughs> I have a feeling it was more like they got bad news or something before the event. <laughs> everybody got everybody got bad news. Everyone in the country club, you know, I don't yeah. know, maybe they were out of shrimp. Yeah, Who knows? It could have been anything. And maybe I just could have plainly sucked. You know, I came here for the shrimp, but I got to listen to this. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, it was, it was a good guy. I make the country club person sound like a redneck. <laughs> I came here for the shrimp and I have to listen to this per chance. <laughs> Do you have any great poupon over there at that table? <laughs> My go-to country club person is usually Eugene Levy. Like, uh, I was wondering if, uh, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. So describe your humor to people who have not seen you before and who are some of your i know like who a lot of your inspirations are and stuff but who are some of your inspirations in terms of comedy and and describe your kind of style because you don't have a blue style you have like you know a very like kind of wholesome style comedy style which isn't like hip necessarily all the time today you know i mean everybody wants to be edgy and like you know and angsty yep so tell me, tell us a little bit about that. So I, I am learning that I have, you know, you have to know your audience. So if, if they're really craving a blue show, of course, I'm going to dive in there a little bit. Not, not totally immerse myself, but I grew up with Steve Martin records, Robin Williams, Eddie Murphy records. Um, I loved watching Dana Carvey, um, just really latched onto him. Robin Williams, too. Um, just all of those people who were, you know, just nice, great comedians. Eddie Murphy was probably the, the bluest out of all of those. But even from him, he was a very smart comedian. Like, right. he, he really knew how to work something uh, and just, like, really drive it, not just deliver the joke and let it go. Like, he would grab onto something and just expand on it. And that was something something that I think I learned. I'm glad I learned. Mm-hmm. Um, so people don't think about what a brilliant comedian he was yeah. because now he, I mean, he went kind of like a big star and he became a little crazy and he, now he's kind of a recluse, but geez, Eddie Murphy's early stuff was just so good. Yeah. And a lot of it was good. I mean, some people dismiss it because like some of the, you know, some of the stuff didn't travel well, it seems homophobic and, was, and stuff and everything, blue. but it was, it was of the time. Yeah. But the things, if you go past that stuff, his anecdotal, Humor, like the stories that he would tell of growing up and his aunt Bunny and then right. everything and his uncle and right. no, that's a fire, you know. I mean, <laughs> like that stuff is hilarious. Yes. I mean, it was like, you know, the best anecdote. It wasn't like Richard Pryor. It was, it was, you know, much more anecdotal. And he's telling really funny stories and throwing some swear words in there and stuff like that. Yeah. But the swear words were not the be all and end all of the joke. It was they were just like the spice to throw it, thrown into these to these stories that were very 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 funny and the characters that he created to, to me i think it's a lot like uh howard stern i'm mean, like mm-hmm. howard stern if you were to take away his swear words and his you know just really uh blue humor that he does on his show 
and especially back in the 80s, 90s, when he was first coming up, everybody's like, oh, you know, shock jock, ooh, stay away. If you were to take away a lot of that, uh, a lot of the swear words, a lot of the blue, he's a very smart guy. I mean, extremely smart guy and, and just has good sense of humor. Uh, but at the time, he was just trying to do something different. He was being who he is and just, yeah, this is who I am. This is, I'm going to work blue. Uh, and that's, that's just what sold uh, where he is today. I mean, I think that's why he's still popular because he just has that different edge about him that a lot of people didn't care to try. And they went for it and it worked. So when did you get into comedy sports? It seems like, you know, comedy sports was the perfect home for you. There are some people I think of when I think of comedy sports. I mean, obviously, I think of the Adamsons. And you're one of the, like, right after the Adamsons, I think of you. Because you just, like, boom, you fit that format so, so well. I mean, because you're quick-witted, you come up with characters, you have clean humor, you know, you just seem to, you know, that just seems like your natural milieu. When did you first discover that, and was it as revelatory as I would imagine it was for you, where you were like, you know, wow, this is it, this is my home? Sure. I started doing stand-up right out of high school, so I was 18, uh, went to the Funny Bone in Davenport, just was briefly there, and I learned learned um, probably that September that they were going to do this thing called the Jay Leno Comedy Challenge. And it was this nationwide contest because it was 1992 when Jay Leno took over for Johnny Carson. So they were going to find the the nation's best comic uh, out of all these competitions that were regional in different areas. After a few sessions of stand-up, I got to learn some of the stand-up comedians around here. Louis Knob, Jeff Adamson, uh, Steve Pilchin, uh, great guys, Dan Dybert. Um, Dan, uh, no, I was going to say Dan will be here this Saturday, but this could play any time. Uh, anyway... <laughs> Uh, we we kind of formed this small group of guys who, like, and these are the guys who g- generally do comedy in this area. So this Jay Leno Comedy Challenge comes along, and, yeah, all the typicals make it. I mean, I think we started at Circa 21. I think it was a night of, like, 100 comics who got to do, like, three, four minutes each long night. I mean, it was just a very long night. Uh, but they trim it down to like 12. From there, it trims down to 6. I made the cut all the way down to 6. Jeff Adamson happened to be uh, one of the finalists as well. Uh, who, and he actually went on to win uh, the competition. It was, uh, it was awesome. He did a, a great job. But during that, he's like, hey, um, I'm also doing this thing called comedy sports. It's improv comedy. Uh, if you ever want to come check it out, feel free, because I, I think you'd, you'd enjoy it. And I think I went that January, and the first session there, just it was a, it was a practice that they had. Everybody was so welcoming. It was something I, t- I had no idea what improv comedy was. It was just like, oh my gosh, this exists? Holy cow. And we go through uh, the practice, and I was like, yeah, I'm hooked. Sign me up. What do I got to do? And uh, from there, I think I hit the stage maybe that March. 
um, after several practices and it just blossomed from there just absorbed everything I could every exercise I, I taught improv for a very long time still use it in a lot of my presentations today um, but just so much of it just really connected with me because it's it's about being free it's about taking an idea and expanding it's about just really having somebody that has your back and you're you're gonna help them no matter what they're gonna try to do it's about justifications it's about quick wit all that kind of stuff that I, it was just my home it's my wheelhouse and I, I've done it ever since so Rick I have a pretty serious question to ask you now no. um, when did you become the casino Rock Island guy <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So for those who did, for those who remember this, Rick, what used to be the guy in the Casino Rock Island commercials, who would you know? What were some of your signature lines? You were like the young Sinatra guy who was surrounded by the showgirls and, right. and would be in these commercials. How, tell us how that came about, Rick, and. What was the downfall that led to you leaving or, you know, for the, that gig ending? Sure. So I started doing voiceover also um, out of high school. Uh, it was something I was interested in. Just I, I wanted to do cartoon characters, um, but knew that uh, voiceover was something that it was a way of, of getting there, getting your chops, uh, kind of practice, all that kind of stuff. And some of the local agencies I worked with were, were great. And there happened to be this, um, this commercial, this campaign come along for um, Casino Rock Island that they needed uh, this kind of hip, young person to dri drive that younger crowd. Um, and the, the guy who wrote the song, Tony Vogel, uh, he, he was an audio engineer at Silver Oaks. And he said, hey, Rick, I don't know if you'd be interested in this. Uh, we got this campaign coming up. Would you mind trying this song and see how, how it goes? So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I did it. And I, I'm not a singer by any means. It, I, I struggled through it. But Tony was like, that's what I want. But I'm going to have Martha, Martha Rank, who was a copywriter there at the time. Uh, I'm going to have her work with you um, on kind of getting this thing fleshed out. So we get in the studio, we cut it, and the song was just, she did a great job of really teaching me what I needed to learn to, to get this song done. After that, they're like, oh, and by the way, we have to do some video for this, too. And I, I went white. I was just like, oh, my gosh, I have to be on camera for this, too? Um, I wasn't expecting that because, again, going back to who I used to be, I didn't have a good view of myself. I thought I was ugly. You know, I, I was probably 150 pounds, but in my brain, I, I grew up thinking I was like 3,000 3, pounds, you know, just a really big guy. Um, so... I'm definitely afraid of, of doing this video. We do the video, I'm surrounded by gorgeous women, all the fancy schmancy stuff. It was awesome. Uh, and from there, the it probably went on, gosh, I don't know, seven, eight years maybe um, on TV and radio. And then eventually they they had a female do the song because I, I, I don't know, I, I never even learned why they, they switched the female uh, to the female voice because... 
I, I know it was getting good feedback, but I think somebody at Casino Rock Island was just like, eh, we need to switch it up, I think. Um, or maybe they were just sick of hearing my voice, too. I, I don't know. But, yeah, it was, it was a great gig, and I'm, I'm very honored that I, I went through it. Looking to get more females addicted to gambling, Rick. <laughs> so how does it feel to be responsible for so many gambling addictions here in the Quad Cities? Not good. <laughs> They did an ad campaign for heroin dealers, didn't you? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they wanted someone young and hip to uh, to bring the kids into her- yeah. back to heroin yeah, and opioids. So during the time, we're going to cocaine Rock Island. <laughs> <laughs> right. I remember that. I remember what did that, that ran on Sunday mornings on KWQC and uh, WQAD, didn't it? Had a, had a little show on Channel Four, you know. Yeah. That, there was an infomercial right. for cocaine rock island wasn't there <laughs> you were the host yep <laughs> have you ever found yourself in this instance you're looking for some cocaine and you don't have any <laughs> what are you gonna do <laughs> do you like burst through the walls like cocaine man is here to help you cocaine rock island can help you out with that a cocaine rock island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, supporting addictions everywhere. Yeah. Right. yeah. Do you like how I remember that? Do you like how I remember exactly how that went? That, that infomercial. Good man, that was pretty good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I was a fan. <laughs> so. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you the bill for rehab, Rick. <laughs> my apologies. That's another one of my favorite rumors. We were talking about rumors about. Like there's so many rumors about the, uh, around the Quad Cities. One of my favorite, one of my other favorite rumors about me was that um, I was the official cocaine dealer for Ribco <laughs> and Second Avenue. That was back in like the early 2000s when I was I was spending before my son was born, and I was a young single guy bachelor out into the town and spending a lot of time down the district out of Ribco and and Second Avenue. When that rumor began to go around that like and I liked the phrase the official coke dealer as if <laughs> as if there was a an auction that Terry Tilka held and and you know I had to bid if we had to put in silent sealed bids for who was going to be the official cocaine right. dealer well, for Ribco the right, yeah there was exactly. a course that you went through and yep I learned all the ins and outs right right yeah got your certification right I have the pla- I still have the you know plaque the memento plaque up on my wall you know from being that the official cocaine dealer of of uh, Ribco. You know, so, yeah. Speaking of that, I just heard a rumor. This is probably a few weeks ago. I just heard this, but I am out of touch uh, when it comes to like s- stories, like mm-hmm. what's going on with people. I- I'm the last guy to know anything, mm-hmm. uh, but I just heard one about me that. Okay, so I, I'm in the process of losing weight. I've lost probably 35 pounds mm-hmm. since the summer. Uh, still got a ways to go. Anyway. Uh, people have been uh, seeing some pictures of me when I was younger, and there's some people like, wow, you're really thin, all this kind of stuff. And then one of my friends said, yeah, I heard that you used to be the real ladies' man. Like, you, you were like a male whore. I wish. I mean, I, there was, I was never that way. But, man, I, I don't know if people just assume that or just, uh, you know, people talk, think, uh, see me out with somebody and think, oh, they're, they're screwing, they're fucking whatever. And, yeah, that was probably the last thing I, I did. I, I haven't had many uh, female partners that I'd, I'd like to have. Yeah. 
there, there's always that. There's so, so many rumors that go around. Like, and you're right. Like, you see people see. I mean, people are probably walking by us here in Theo's right now, Rick, and go and you know, starting a rumor about the two of us. <laughs> so, not saying it isn't true, but it. yes, exactly. But uh, yeah, the other rumor, the other, my other favorite rumor was that Tristan Tab Scott and I ran a uh, escort <laughs> service out of the the bottom of the Ar- Argus building, so the basement of the Argus building. That's, you know, I wonder how that one got started. Right. <clears throat> Like, why would, why would be, we, I mean, if you've ever been in the basement of the Argus building, you know that's the last place you'd ever want to have an escort service or any sort of relations. I mean, uh, but anyway, um, so then you get on to, you start doing some dr- dramatic work <coughs> from comedy sports. And that's how you and I kind of started working together because I'd only, you know, kind of, you know, seen you on stage. I saw you in Tony Cheetah's wedding and, and, you know, a couple other different things, but they're all comedic. And then I saw you in a show called Lobby Hero. Lonergan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a great show and you took kind of a dramatic turn. And at the same time, that was when I was working on the script for your favorite band, which was a show, the multimedia show that, um, that I did wrote and produced and everything um back in 2004 Mm -hmm. and um and i remember like instantly like that's it that's the guy who's playing the lead Mm -hmm. in this because you had that like such you the the lead the show your favorite band was about a band called the miserable failures and their lead singer is jude page and they're a one-hit wonder band from the 90s that's desperately trying to recreate that and and failing miserably and um and it's just it's a comedy about that and about his broken marriage and he's trying to get back together with his ex-wife and everything else and and jude is this kind of like he was one of those like 70s anti-heroes type of characters that paul newman used to always play you know um and but you needed somebody who had that likability and who could be kind of not so much roguish but sort of like down in his luck but still charming Mm -hmm. and you had that perfect persona for that Mm -hmm. um thank you what do you remember from that show from uh from lobby hero and how different was that for you to take on something of a dramatic role and then what was it like when I approached you and said, hey, do you want to do this script? And, oh, by the way, you're in every single scene in this. <laughs> it was it was flattering. Uh, I, I remember, gosh, speaking of the way I used to feel about myself, I remember approaching you uh, as we're going through some of the rehearsals. And I, I told you I used to weigh like about 150 I think I was up to like 170. And I came up to you, which 170 is still pretty thin for my height. I come up to you and I'm like, hey, I just want you to know, I know I've gained a few pounds. I'll lose it, man. I just want you to... I remember having that conversation with you. Anyway. You know uh, what did I say? I said, you goddamn well better. <laughs> it's probably something very similar to that. <laughs> Ass. Uh, I, was, I was honored that you asked me to do it because Lobby Hero was a challenge for me. And that's why I did it. It was something different. I saw a lot of my friends doing dra- dramatic work and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to try this. And I... I got cast and really had a great time with it. Uh, great cast with me, too. Um, but then you you approached me, and Jamie, uh, who was the, the female lead, she was the female. Jamie Johnson. Yep, she was the female lead in Lobby Hero also. So she and I already had that chemistry oh, together. Had great chemistry. Yeah, yeah. She, she was great. Um, but doing that was just like... 
this is really brilliant. I, I was very, very impressed by what you created because it was a multimedia event. We uh, like we had uh, a projection system during the actual performance. Uh, I mean, who's doing that? Nobody's done it since because it was an insane amount of work. <laughs> I mean, remember that? Like how long it took us to... And we did it with Scott and Brian. Mm-hmm. With Scott Beck and Brian Woods who yeah. will probably be nominated for an Oscar next year. Yeah. The Blue Box guys, they wrote A Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. But back in 2004 they were you know a couple of teenagers who were working with us awesome. and shooting these these uh, little short movies basically the way this the way i wrote the show it was um kind of an immersive theater experience where you'd have at the time like people were only doing you know your traditional this show is on the stage and the audience is in the audience and that's it and there's no crossing the boundary and everything's on the stage and the way i wrote that it was in the speakeasy and i had some scenes were on the stage some scenes we had a table in the audience and so like if somebody if the characters were in a bar talking to each other they'd be in the audience and they'd be talking we'd have a spotlight set up to go to that spot in the audience and then if they were out at the bar at a bar they were back at the bar in the speakeasy and then the fourth wall in the speakeasy we had set up and we had a projection screen on it and then we would project these movie scenes and they were synced up perfectly because like when you would leave i remember you and the band you'd get in a fight you got in a fight and you walked through the speakeasy arguing with each other and left and literally walked out the speakeasy door the door the lights went down immediately and the projector came on and there was a scene the movie scene of you guys walk walking out the door of the speakeasy outside and walking down the street and that's how we did it is everything was synced up yeah and the reason why that was the way it was is because when I first wrote your favorite band, I wrote it as a movie. And with a movie, you can be anywhere. Right. You can be, you can drive, be, have driving scenes and everything else. And I was like, how the hell am I going to do these driving scenes? It would look really stupid if we tried to stage these things. And I was like, well, why don't we film them as a? Mo- why don't I write them as, keep them as movie scenes, and we'll film them as a movie, and then we'll try and do it. And I remember so many people going, oh man, that's not going to work. Yeah. That, how the hell are you going to do that? That's not going to happen. I'm like, no, no, no let's do it let's yeah. let's see if we can do it and sure enough it, it worked and i mean a lot of that was because of you i mean you and jamie were both so likable and the chemistry between you was so good the chemistry between the cast was everybody so good was amazing. everybody yeah. was amazing in that show but you and Jamie really held it together. I mean, you were literally in every single scene. And unless, you know, the audience liked you and could be with you and could hang with you, it wasn't going to work. And I think the reason why that show worked so well, and we sold out like a month mm-hmm. at, at the speakeasy, like every weekend was sold out, it was because you were such a likable character and you imbued that persona of, of Jude Page so well. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. I, I remember one scene, and... It still sticks in my brain for some reason, but the one scene that I still have issue with, which was brilliant, it was a great scene because it drove the story, was here I am trying to get back with my ex, you know, possibly, maybe, but you, you, you kind of feel that that's where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Jude actually ends up kissing this girl at the bar, mm-hmm. and in for me instinctually inside i'm like this guy's an asshole it was early in the movie (laughs) yeah who would who would do this well they're not together and he's hooking up with like a it was like a after a show and it was a groupie 
She was like, you know, she was one of the, the few groupies like that was still hanging around for the miserable failures and stuff. And it's right at the beginning of the show. And the, I misplaced that. I, I thought in, in my brain, I remember as being, he was already trying to get back with his ex and that's when he kissed her. So good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I wrote that at the beginning because <laughs> that establishes the character. It establishes that like he still has something of a fan base. And that's why I wrote that is because you want this character to seem like he's still kind of got a little bit of fame and so the other part of it may have been that i i was i just got married and i knew my my wife at the time would have seen me uh kiss this girl and i may have had apprehensions about that i have no idea i just (laughs) i remember it was just very uncomfortable but it was a great scene it was awesome and tiana was a great kisser Mm yes she she did a great job yeah um yeah because then he's trying to get the the, his ex-wife is with uh is with the other guy and he she He's going to get engaged to him, and that's what kind of then is the catalyst for them sort of reconsidering getting back together is because she, the guy asked her boyfriend, uh, asks her to marry him and to move away. Mm. And you, and it's you know, that dichotomy of here you are. And the reason why you guys have broken up is because you go out on tour as a musician and you're never around. And here she is being presented with a choice of like, do I move away? And then he's not going to get to see his daughter as much. And she's like, kind of like, why the hell do I have to be the responsible adult here? That's not fair. And so it creates this conflict there. And then ultimately you guys, she ends up deciding to stay and then you end up deciding to stay and you kind of both compromise and, and sort of meet on an equal path. But yeah, that was the very beginning where you're kind of a single guy and you're kind of heartbroken and you don't want to be in a relationship because you still kind of, you're still in love with your ex. You still, you still have feelings for it. And you realize you, you realize you fucked it up because you, you, you're very guilty. You feel guilty about that. The the way you wrote that was awesome because here's this guy who, who is just torn. He, he knows he probably has to move on, but really doesn't want to because he really has feelings for his ex. The way you wrote that was so delicate in the sense that you have to make this guy likable. You can't make sure that this guy is just the, the guy who's sleeping around with anybody he sees. It was a very soft and, and easy way of doing it. And, and the way you handled that with your writing was just really, really well done because eventually the crowd is on his side. It, had it been the other way around, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think the guy really would have gotten the reaction he, he would have in that, in that play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you don't see him that way. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, I got my heart broken and I, I have, I still am in love with this person. So it's not really fair for me to become enga- entangled with anyone else. So I'll go through these series of kind of casual things yeah. where like nobody's going to get their heart broken because we're kind of all just looking for something casual. Yeah. And then. And then you see him with his daughter, which, you know, you had such great chemistry with Kylie, who played your daughter in that show. And you see how um, loving he is and what a great relationship he has there. And you, you kind of see where he wants this, you know, he wants this family. And there's that, that one line in it where she says, you know, the problem with Jude is that the potential adoration of a million people means more to him than the real love 
of one person. Hmm. And he has to make that decision because right. eventually, like at first, he was trying to fill this gap in his heart with fame, mm-hmm. and they became very famous very fast. And it was like, oh, this is great, but he kind of it kind of felt hollow. Yeah. And then he lo- ended up losing the person that he really cared about. Yeah. And then he has to kind of reconcile that. And yeah. So that's that was really the driving force behind your character and behind the whole show. What was the? There was something at the end that, like, it was it was just like right at the very end. End, but there was a line that we changed almost nightly. Like every time we did the play, it was just we did something different. I can't remember what it was, but it was always a funny thing that we did. Was that when we had the guest reporters? We had like because every at the end of the show, um, every night, all the different nights of the show, I invited a different media personality to come in because at the very end, your character gets interviewed. Right. Because you guys kind of come back and right. you have another David hit. Burke was there? Yeah, and it was yeah, like yeah. David Burke, Laura Adams did yeah. it, Jim Mertens did it, like a lot of different local media personalities came up on stage and they would change the lines and yeah. then you would improv- improvise with them. It, was, uh, it yeah. just needed to get to that. Thought the last line of the show was, you know, well, you used to be a miserable failure do you think now that you're an incredible success and you're like yeah yeah i i, I do right and that was the last line but before that i kind of gave you guys like these loose parameters of okay i want you to improvise because none of the media people are actors right. and so i'm just like don't be nervous just pretend you're interviewing him <laughs> you know just be a media person and pretend like he's an actual like you know he's had a hit and he's come back again and you're interviewing him yeah. ask him a couple questions rick improvise with it and answer the questions in a funny way and then get to the get to the the last ask him three questions and then get to the last question which leads to that fault the, gotcha. the end line gotcha. and that was it and so yeah at the end of the show is this you know it was different every night mm-hmm. because of that because that line was different awesome awesome i something sticks in my brain with kylie also like there was whether it was how i said goodnight to her or something. yes it, I, I allowed you guys to do different things because we worked that we workshopped that where like the two of you had this really cool dynamic and it was um you would yeah every night you would have a different way in which you would say goodnight to her and you would say goodbye to her and you'd come up with different like kind of like these little in jokes between the two of you and i wanted you to have that because you're her dad right. in the show yep. and so as a, her dad you would have these little inside jokes with her and you would have these little like goofy little things yep. and so i wanted you guys to feel comfortable with that and so i kind of let do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know, just make sure that it's some sort of affectionate little thing that you kind of, you guys come up with between the two of you. And so I was surprised. I didn't even know what the heck you guys were going to do from <laughs> night to night. And you'd come up with all these different things, which is really cool. Awesome. Yeah, well, I think that says a lot to you as a, as a director, allowing us to have that freedom, too. Because some people just, you know, I've worked with directors who are like, no, you have to stick to the script. And they have to know exactly what's going to happen. But you're just like, no, this this needs the feeling. And you went with it. That was great. Well, you've worked with me on short films and stuff, too. I mean, I, I, I like the collaborative process. So then we did, then we did some sketch comedy. Hmm. And you, of course, got to play Ezekiel Snowy, which is a, you know, <laughs> renegade preacher who has a thing for chickenzilla and some other roles um and then you kind of got away from comedy for a while and started doing you know inspirational speaking and things of that nature um let's talk a little bit about about that where you kind of got away from comedy you started you know getting into some different different arenas um how did that come about and you know how do you feel in regard to that you know aspect of your career yeah uh, being the 
the hurt child, I grew up listening to a lot of self-help things. Tony Robbins was probably a big one that I, I listened to uh, a lot. And so grabbing onto what he was doing, I, I just felt like, ah, this is something I'd love to do. I'd, I'd love to try it. So probably in the early 2000s, I was getting asked to do more speaking engagements. Um, and a lot of those engagements were, you know, MC events, just uh, short speeches, things like that. And the more I did it, the more I loved it. Just, I really connected with audiences. And so being a performer in my brain, if, if I could help someone while being able to perform at the same time, that's what, that's what speaking does. That's what presentations are meant to do. Um, and from there, I've just I grew and, and blossomed into the, the messages that I share with a lot of audiences. I created a program with uh, Bob Kelly, who is in Wicked Liz. Uh, Bob has been a great friend through the years. And we created this program called Doer Diabetes that helped people learn the, the psychological side of being diagnosed with diabetes. I have type 1. Bob's dad passed away from complications of type 2. So we went to uh, hy V and said, hey, can we do these in, in your stores? And they were like, yeah, please do. That would be awesome. So we went around all the Midwest and, and gave a lot of these talks. Great response. But the one that stuck out to me was in Des Moines. And Bob and I do this event. It's it's a big deal because there's a camp in Iowa called Camp Hurtgo Hollow. Sure, and it's for kids who have type 1. And Dr. Hurtgo was going to be there. So we were like, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. If we could get in with him, then we could really land a, a lot more of these gigs. So we, we do the event, and Bob's amazing. The, the crowd just loves Bob every time. I was kind of off my game a little bit. But I, I, my, the thing that stuck out to me was there was this lady in the crowd who was kind of disheveled. Like, she didn't look like she, she really belonged there. Like, she didn't want to be there, but she was there. So after the show, everybody usually comes up to us and is like, hey, great job. That was awesome. All that kind of stuff. But this lady, she stands up at the table she was sitting at, and she just stands. She doesn't say anything, move anything. She's just kind of observing. And I work my way over to her, and I just simply say, so what would you think? And she immediately starts crying. And she goes, my mother would still be alive today had she heard what you just talked about and that was just like oh my gosh and come to find out her mom just passed away two weeks ago and she's having a hard time dealing with it and all this kind of stuff and she was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes herself and it was one of those experiences that was just like oh this is why i do what i do uh it, i wish i could have helped her mom obviously but hopefully she'll take this message that bob and i shared and, and use that in her life I just reached out to, uh, th this was probably like 2012 that this happened. I just reached out to the hy V probably last year just to check in and say, hey, uh, didn't know if anybody's uh, checked in on Bonnie lately, how she's doing, because there was a dietitian that was working with her. And uh, the dietitian said, Bonnie is thriving. She's doing great. She's lost all this weight. She's really got her A1C numbers down, just really, really doing awesome. So it was just like, man, this, this is exactly why I do what I do. But now I've transitioned into teaching presenters how to perform because uh, there's a lot of speakers out there who, who do a good job, but they just they don't put the audience first. They don't think, how can I engage with the audience? How can I help this audience put the focus? 
on the audience and really interact with them. So I, I teach a lot of what I've learned in the performance background, stand-up comedy, theater, voiceover, all that kind of stuff. And I teach presenters how to use that in their presentations so they can get more results, have more impact with their audience, and, and just magnify and multiply their message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do people get in touch with you to book you for a gig or, you know, to, to training. training or anything like that? Uh, DavisPresentationGroup.com. It's, uh, it's, I just formed the LLC for it over the summer. Um, it's, it's new. It's exciting. I've been, I've been doing this kind of work for probably about two years now, but I just formed the LLC in July. And uh, just it's really taken off, getting a lot of interest. I'm, I'm doing more one-on-one coaching, a lot of... Uh, uh, wanting to do more group presentations, group coaching, uh, and I'm getting into more corporate gigs as well, more corporate training, teaching sales uh, managers, CEOs. Uh, CEOs got a lot of work to do. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, you're still doing comedy sports too. Yeah. And you're still. What does that feel like after all these years? You still, you know, you're still excited by it. Is it something that you still really enjoy? I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. It's it's one of those things that. It, it it goes in waves, you know. The longer you do something, it's just like, eh, it's what I do. Uh, but I'm I'm bringing the joy. I, I there was a time where I didn't, but I. I've learned that I have to. I have to bring the joy to, to all my performances now. Um, it, what the, the unique challenge now is we, we're getting more uh, younger players, which is awesome. We need those younger players. Um, and it's connecting, finding ways to connect with them, work with them, and understanding what their style of humor is and how we can complement each other and how can I set them up to, to make them look good. So that, that's been a, a challenge for me because uh, I... You know, I'm kind of out of touch of what the younger generations are into, but I'm, I'm learning. As soon as I learn that they like something, I'm going to go look it up. I'm going to kind of research what I can about it and uh, try and make sure I connect with them in some fashion the next time. What have you not done that you would still like to do? <sighs> Probably quite a bit. Um, I'd say... I, I, I think I got another one-man show in me, and I, and I think it has to do with my childhood experience with my dad. I mean, not like I'm going to lambast the guy, just what it's like growing up in that environment and, and what it leads to later on in life if, if you don't take care of it, if you're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I got... Uh, a show in me. There was a guy named Bo Eason who used to be a, an NFL player. He created a one-man show called Runt of the Litter. It was on Broadway. Um, everybody loved it. it it's really good. Um, but that was kind of the springboard for the idea. Just like, wow. He, he went through that experience and he shared it. He was very vulnerable with his experiences. I, I think I could create something very similar to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think people... Um, People are hungering for an authenticity nowadays. It's really strange. We're in this odd era where everybody has an online persona and, you know, going through Snapchat filters and weeding out the ugliness of your pictures and your life and stuff. And everybody presents the good, you know, all the good things about it. Um, I think that that show would, you know, fit in with that really, really well. So um, anything else you got going on that, uh, you know, you'd like to talk about, Rick? Uh, Just being a dad. uh, I'm loving dadhood. Uh, I'm, I got my boy full time. His mom's in Oregon. So uh, we do a great job of keeping in touch and uh, he goes, out there for the summers and uh it's i I think 
it, it says a lot about relationships, how they, how they can be. They don't have to be miserable divorces. She and I are divorced. She's remarried. Um, I'm, I'm super happy for her because she's with a guy she adores. Um, but being mom and dad to him is still priority number one. And that's, that's what we've done. And we, we've made him the priority, not whatever beef we have with each other. Um, so I, I think that that's probably something that, uh, you know, if we had more time, I'd love to talk about. Um, and gosh, uh, I, I think that's probably about it. I, I'm enjoying uh, being a single dad. I, of course, I'd love to connect with somebody and have that companion to talk to. But right now, uh, I'm just thriving in this business and making it my own. So we begin the podcast talking about relationships. We end the podcast talking about relationships. <laughs> Good book ending there. So... <laughs> Once again, thank thank you for being uh, on the show. Hope you'll be uh, a guest again at some point, Rick. Uh, Let me know. Happy to, man. Always a good time talking to you. Cool, cool. Once again, Rick Davis. um, Been friends for a long time. Great performer. He's done any number, a lot of things. Comedy, sports. He's done television. He's done one-man shows. He's done drama. He's done, like, all different kinds of stuff around the area. Always fun seeing him on stage. And, as always, a pleasure talking with you in person as well, my friend. So, once again, thank you to Rick Davis for being guest on the show. And thank you to you, <clears throat> the listeners, for listening to QC Uncut with me, your host, Sean Leary. Offering uncut, uncensored, unedited conversation with local people of interest. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a great day.